Hey team, welcome back to the Carb Appropriate Podcast. It was my absolute pleasure on this episode to speak with my good friend, Dr. Mickey Willardin. Mickey is an educator and lecturer in nutrition. She's also a very well-published researcher and is one of the clinicians who's really on the forefront of the low-carb or lower-carb and whole food, real food-based movement here in Australasia. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the chat with me and Mickey. Welcome to the Carb Appropriate Podcast. I'm your host, Cliff Harvey. This song don't give a damn. If the rhymes don't fit with the DJ, quit. This song don't give a damn. You can't sing or dance to it, can't romance to it. This song ain't arrogant. If you don't try and buy it, or if your radio denies it, don't care about what, who got, what's cool on TV, or what spots hot, I forgot. I ain't mad at evolution. But I stand for revolution. Get up. Enough is enough. Hey, somebody stand up. Come on. Get up. Stand up. Get up. Stand up. Get up. Stand up. Get up. Welcome back to the Carb Appropriate Podcast. It is my absolute pleasure today to be talking to my good buddy, Dr. Mickey Willardin. Uh, as, as per usual, I do my little Genesis story uh, with, with my guests on the, on the podcast. I met Mickey quite a few years ago now, and it was at a health and fitness expo. I was spruiking one of my products, Good Green Stuff. And one of our staff said, oh, we've got a uh, nutritionist who wants to, to talk to you about a few things. And I thought, oh, no, here we go. Because typically when a nutritionist or dietitian comes up and wants to talk to me, they, they want to slam me for some aspect of low carb or carb appropriate nutrition and sort of take me to task on saturated fats and things like that. And obviously, it didn't turn out that way. Mickey was pretty much on the same page. And we had a great old chat then and became firm friends since then. And then you went on to become my supervisor for my master's research. Yes. We've done a bunch of stuff together. We've written some publications together and we're, we're now doing a little bit of, you know, further research together, which we probably can't talk about. And so welcome, Mickey. It's great to have you on. Oh, hey, Cliff. It's an honor to be asked to come onto your podcast. I'm stoked. Well, we're, so we're only, only getting the, the cream of the crop at this stage, I think. <laughs> Clearly. And i got to say, like every time you kind of introduce me and you use doctor and all the rest of it, you know I feel this way. I always kind of like, you always talk me up and it's awesome. I think I need to hire you as my PR manager. <laughs> well, I, I think you, you probably need to up yourself a little bit more. I was actually thinking about that before we got on the cast. It's really interesting the work that you do because it, it's so practical, it's so applicable, it's so translational. I think often people forget that that's the type of work that has real cut through. And you're a legitimate nutrition scientist, you know, you've got a PhD, you've done a bunch of research, you've been a lecturer, you've been a clinician for a long period of time. And I think often people almost dismiss people like yourself who are doing the practical and applied work because maybe it's not seen as being as as clever or as smarty pants as using big words and things. But it, mm. if anything, it probably has more cut through and more impact. It's interesting you say that, Cliff. Like I, I suppose I'm, you know, I know 
obviously quite a few people through my um, connections, um, but also with Facebook, for example, you're kind of out there on social media. And I get a lot of people who might come to me and ask my specific, my specific kind of advice or opinion on certain things. Um, yet there are other people which I guess they look, also look to other people for almost the, the kind of glam aspect of what I'm saying. You know, oh, you agree with this person, so it must be right. Or, you know, that, that kind of thing. I don't know if that makes sense, but um, I suppose we're... It, it, sometimes it does feel like I'm kind of down in the trenches, but I love it there, you know, like that whole social media thing. I really enjoy kind of putting across science in a practical way which people can use. And then also cutting through some of this rubbish with regards to the types of foods that are out there that people are people are professing are healthier than just, you know, other foods. And, and not to be, I suppose, um, what is the suggest that there are good and bad foods generally speaking but I think there are some things which are put on a pedestal which which shouldn't be I don't know if I just kind of talked myself in circles there no it make, makes complete sense I mean there are certain people who have I mean there are foods that have a health halo right whether that's yeah. deserved or not mm-hmm. and I think there are people there are researchers there are clinicians who have a halo effect as well mm. and, and that can be a challenge that can be problematic uh, because, you know, all of us will have our favorites. Mm. We'll all have our favorite researchers. We'll all have people that we really respect. And that's fine. That's cool because they've obviously done really good work. But I think we always need to remain circumspect. And I was going to jump into this later, but we might as well talk about it now since we've already got off, off, on track. I, I was just started listening to the um, Gary Torb's is it Stephen Guyanet or Stephen Guyanet? I can't. I don't never remember how to pronounce his last name. DNA, like DNA, but with a G. Yeah. So the Stephen Guyanet Gary Torbs debate on Joe Rogan. Mm. I haven't listened to it yet, so I need to go back and and listen to it properly. But I just noticed on social media it's blowing up this big debate, and most of the people that I follow or associate with, a lot of their followers are just completely, you know anti-Torbs and anti-anyone who basically has a similar, you know, similar mentality, even if they might actually be a bit more evidence-based than Gary Torbs. Now, what I'm seeing is that a lot of people don't actually exercise any real discretion of their own. They don't exercise any real thinking around this. They're just following the people that they follow who don't like Torbs' message. Now, whether or not Torbs is right, I, I don't believe he is in an absolute sense. I think the insulin hypothesis has a lot of flaws, but there are a lot of nuances within that area that we need to continue to flesh out with research because the whole story has not been told. And I think, you know, from from reading through my PhD thesis, you would have noticed that in the, in the, at the end in the discussion, I looked at a lot of those tangential, tangential pieces of research which haven't really been addressed well enough yet. Mm. Do you know, it's interesting because I um, hopped onto the podcast yesterday yeah. and started listening to listening to it. And, and sometimes I feel like when people get uh, like exactly what you say, like they're, they're not, they don't actually put their critical minds to the topic. They kind of... They, they don't like Torbs, they don't like his message, and that's what they attack. I don't know, like, I listened to Chris Kresser, and 
that um, the, the doctor, I can't recall, was a vegan doctor, and, he's, and it was the case for and against red meat. Mm-hmm. What I liked about the discussion was that, for the most part, people remained respectful throughout it, you know, with each other and, and the rest of it. And it kind of, you know, it sounded, it seemed a little bit more like a fist fight, um, the bit that I was listening to um, yesterday. Yeah. And so you can kind of get lost on the detail of, lost in that rather than actually looking at the evidence base. And like you, Cliff, like, I don't see why there has to be a debate around the insulin hypothesis versus um, DNA's brain hypothesis and, and leptin hypothesis. Like, surely elements of both theories actually, um, like, are true. But you're right, it's so nuanced. Like, I don't, I don't think there should be, like, a, oh, yeah, you're right, you win. Yeah, and I think it's seldom as simple as people make it. And I don't necessarily think it's the problem of it's not always the problem of the people who are debating it's the people who are following those people debating who then oversimplify it in a really big way and i think that's particularly true when we look at you know this area of nutrition where you'll have for example a mindset that well at the end of the day irrespective of everything that's going on at some point it still comes down to calories in calories out yeah and I would agree because that's mm. the first law of thermodynamics. Mm-hmm. But when you oversimplify to that point and that causes you to reject any nuances that may be allowing people to exercise, you know, proper calorie balance or mm-hmm. that provides for nuances within it. Like I call it a, a functional calorie deficit is what's required to lose body fat, not necessarily yeah. an absolute calorie deficit. Yeah. You're, you're basically rejecting all of these various things. Now, when we looked at, um, You'll remind me. Um, Ebeling's latest oh, sort yes. of research, um, Cara Ebeling's re- later research on, you know, the, the sort of on the insulin hypothesis where there was increased calorie usage and things. That was pretty That's much right. rejected out of hand by most people. Mm. But you can't do that because it was a very good study and they used gold standard methods for it. Yeah. Now, from my point of view, that's that's interesting to keep looking into because it shows the complexity of the human body. It doesn't prove that low carbs better or the insulin hypothesis of the situation because it's not. It just shows that yeah. hey, there's cool stuff going on here. I totally agree with you, and I think that you know that whole if we're thinking about calories in versus calories out, what we're forgetting if it's just absolute calories is the body's hormone response to the food. You know, and whether or not they're going to take those calories and shift them. Um, or they're going to store them and, and a whole host of that. And I suppose that's what you're talking about with that functional calorie deficit, right? It's yep. what's, what's actually physiologically happening in the body. And, and are we utilizing more calories than, um, uh, than what we're consuming, essentially? Or are we storing those calories? And it wouldn't matter whether you were having 1,000 calories or 2,000, you'd still effectively be storing. Yeah. Are, are we storing them? Where are we storing them? Yeah. And, and why is that occurring? You know, I, I always use the example, whenever anyone says, well, it's just about energy in, energy out, mm. I would say, yeah, you're right. But let's take the example of you have two people eating the same, eating habitual calories, mm-hmm. and you change the ratio of protein within one of those people's diet, increase their protein, they're still eating the same amount of calories, they'll lose body fat. Yeah. Because the functional endpoint's different. You know, it's, it's yeah. far more difficult. And we've realized it, it's even more difficult than we thought previously right it's really difficult for the body to convert large amounts of those amino acids that are coming in into fat totally 
And the other thing with that is the effect that certain calories have on appetite. You can't ignore that as well, you know, like, and I know that we are talking calories in versus calories out and an equal number of calories. But another situation is you put someone on a 1500 calorie a day diet, it's really difficult for them to stick with it. If, for example, you've got a protein intake of around 10% or less because that is just going to drive you to want to consume more calories so your body gets the amount of protein that they need and that's like the protein leverage theory and and sure there are you know there are um, criticisms to that theory as well but I think a lot of it holds true like people who under eat protein typically overeat carbohydrate foods until they potentially until they reach the amount of protein that they need so there's a, a lot going on there as well and not just um the effects that protein has once you actually eat it yeah and I, I, that's a really good point because that that speaks to functional outcomes of diet you know i don't mean a diet but i mean yeah little d diet eat. the compendium of what we eat and often that is it's discounted because people are so worried about debating for example high carb versus low carb and you know you and i would have heard the criticism many times back in the early days well you look at these low carb studies and it doesn't actually mean anything because if you look at how much the people were eating they ended up eating less and that's the reason why they lost the body fat yeah my point as you know was always yeah but they didn't mean to eat less they were more satiated exactly and that in itself is a win for why a lower carb approach for a lot of people is a more successful approach because you can put anyone on a calorie controlled diet for eight weeks and yes of course they will lose weight whether it's low fat low carb or or anything and if it's a functional calorie deficit however if that diet is going to keep you satisfied then long term you're going to be much more likely to keep that weight off right and that's the problem the problem is never whether or not you can get someone to lose weight of course you can that's actually the easy bit and, and the problem, I would go as far as to say the problem is seldom the type of diet that someone's on. It can mm. be, but it's seldom the type of diet someone's on so much as whether they can stick to a good overall healthy diet for a long period of time. Yeah. And the other thing is, and I talk to my clients a lot about this, and I'm sure you do as well, Cliff, is the other factors in lifestyle outside of diet that are important for fat loss, fat gain, that kind of thing, like stress management techniques or like having a, you know, good sleep routine or getting the type of sleep that you need. Like these things really, I've seen it time and again in my clinic that people are so quick to jump on board dietary guidelines and take your food suggestions and and run with them. But they're, they're less enthusiastic when you say to them, hey, have you thought about your stress management techniques? Why not try this? Or have you got a good kind of sleep hygiene routine set up? Like those kind of behavior changes are so much harder, I think, for people. Yeah. I I don't know exactly why that is either, but I think we become very compartmentalized in our thinking. Mm. And especially if we're going to see someone like, you know, you're a nutritionist. Mm. At the end of the day, people are coming to see you as a nutritionist, right? They're coming to see me as a nutritionist. As soon as you start talking about these other things, like most things in life, they think, oh, no, there's more. Yeah. And they yeah, start yeah, to freak yeah. out because they suddenly think, I've got to do all this stuff. I've got to sleep better. I've got to meditate. I've got to do this and that. Yeah. And, you know, it becomes overwhelming. Totally. Um, but, however, I, I do think that there can be 
you know, I'm not sure if you, you saw, but lately, uh, particularly through last year, I was giving a lot of talks on a very simple theme, which basically encapsulated, hey, here's five things you can do in your day, which are very simple to apply. Let's not overcomplicate it. Let's just do these five things. And it was simple things like when you wake up in the morning, drink two glasses of water, then do five to 10 minutes of meditation, do some type of exercise, even if it's two to five minutes, yeah. you know, and it was very simple things like that. And the, the breakthrough moments were pretty profound because people realized that if they had small bite-sized chunks they could do and were consistent with it, the results can be massive. Whereas I think typically people think a process of change means I've got to change my diet completely, or I've got to start 100%. exercising 10 hours a week or whatever it happens to be. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think that's what, and you forget that that is actually the general mindset. Like it's really easy to be in a bubble. It's really easy yeah. to think that that what how we're talking about food and how we're thinking about nutrition is actually quite mainstream and and well not main not mainstream but that the general population know these things but all it takes is sitting down and having a conversation with someone to make you realize how um, what that people haven't really moved on from or it's hard to push through those messages that have been around forever about you know 45 minutes to an hour at the gym about drastically reducing, reducing, reducing your calories, um, about, yeah, about everything ar around that stuff and cardio as yeah. well. Like, you know, I'm, I'm an endurance athlete from forever and I will always be. But I mean, for fat loss, we know that resistance training is key for that. And HIT training does a far better job of stripping fat than like a city state run will ever do. Yeah. Um, however, of course, exercise is still really important but it's and doing what you love is important but the amount of people that think that it's no point going out unless you go out for like 45 50 minutes is um yeah incredible to me and and that's where i think sometimes there's two points that i thought of there with respect to best practice guidelines mm. one is that best practice guidelines work in an absolute sense for no one because they yeah. are the the mean and no one's exactly on the mean. So whether you need to shift those best practice guidelines just a little bit to suit you or a lot because you're quite different from the supposed norm, they're never going to fit 100%. But the other thing is best practice guidelines are what is going to give the biggest effect typically or the, the optimal effect for most people most of the time. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean you can walk straight into it. You know, if we think that the optimum is where you should be training, you know, maybe three times a week for at least or doing resistance training for at least three times a week for at least 45 minutes and doing some cardio and doing all these other things like eating nine serves of vegetables every day and all these things on and on and on. If you're presented with that and you're not doing any of those things right now, you're going to say that's way too hard. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And it's funny with that. Like I with my clients, I look I, I like to kind of look at the literature and think okay there's this new study on blood sugar control for example so and it's around um being able to walk or cycle like when's the best time to walk or cycle for people to be able to control their blood sugar response after a meal you know and throughout the day and so i'm like well it's actually super like you can actually look at research and distill it down to some practical guidelines for people that sit without sit outside of that moderate 30 to 45 minutes and, and that kind of thing um, yep. you know, the 10 to 15 minutes before breakfast and then again after dinner, you know, 
but equally like someone might not have that half an hour but even if they start with the habit of getting up and go getting out the door for five minutes then there's a habit that in three or four weeks time that is probably fairly firmly established that they can then build on or it might take someone eight weeks and it doesn't matter how long it takes them it's just that you actually instill yeah. it first I think exactly and that that's exactly what it's going to say and not only I mean I'm glad you said it because not only is that a way to get people into those habits and to get them closer to the best practice guideline but it's actually the best way to do it because you know I think about the analogy of you're an endurance athlete right yeah when you were going to run your first marathon did you just go out and run a marathon was that the yeah. first thing you did yeah good course not you know no. my, my old man was a marathon runner and I think he started because he had some familial issues with um you know heart disease and things like that he didn't want to get that mm -hmm. so he started by jogging to the end of the street purely for a health purpose yeah and he started doing that every day so he jogged to the end of the street and then eventually jogging to the end of the street became so easy that he started jogging around the block and he started running longer and longer and then he started getting into it and started reading books on merit this is back in the 70s i think yeah you know reading books on marathon training, James Fix, all those kind of guys, oh, yeah. and developed a habit of running that became something that he loved. But I'm sure if he had have been told, you've got to run 10K, mm. there's no way he couldn't have done it, and it would have put him off completely. Totally agree. It's funny you bring up Jim Fix. He was the first book that I read. I got it out of Dunedin Library when I was about 16 on running. And, oh, I got out that book, and I also purchased John Acklin's power to perform i think that's what it's called oh, yeah. or peak performance man that is that was such a bible i think it's still around now shout out to john yeah yeah exactly <laughs> I, it was great could not understand a word of it and to be fair if i went back now even with my phys ed background probably still wouldn't be able to uh understand it because it was highly complex um uh off tangent though but that jim fix book I remember reading the, in the front cover, there was a um, rest in peace because he ended up dying on a run. He did, and he, he died. Yeah. From what I know, he died from heart disease. He did. And it, he was considered, now rightly or wrongly, I don't know whether it's apocryphal or not, but he was um, considered a bit of a cautionary tale because obviously one of his mantras one of his dogmas was you can basically eat whatever you want so long as you put in enough miles yeah yeah and i think now we would say that well that's pr probably not correct because if you're eating things that are, are not good for you metabolically or maybe they're very inflammatory or maybe they're creating increased glycation or oxidation whatever it happens to be and then you're also trying to make up for that by doing more miles you're putting your body under a, a ton of stress and we yeah. probably i'd say i'd say the evidence is probably pretty clear now that that is uh, atherogenic that's not necessarily a good thing for the heart totally Would you agree? agree completely and also there must have been some genetic element there because that is not going to happen to your general person who is out doing even with what you describe with all that kind of oxidative damage and stress yeah do you know cliff i cannot wait for like 10, 15 years time, where we have some really good clinical research performed in athletes to see, you know, the difference between, and I'm just thinking endurance here, because that's kind of the world with which I um, operate in, you know, the, the, the health markers of athletes who go LCHF or low carb, and the eight, 
high healthy fat, whatever you want to call it, but can, but you know, good amount of protein in there as well. Um, and to see the, the different effects over, you know, six months, 12 months, 24 months on their health markers compared to say just the endurance athletes who may be lean and not, not even fat on the inside, not, not even, you know, toffee or whatever they call it, but lean, but what are their inflammatory markers like? Because there is, there is that yeah. um, kind of dialogue going on in the nutrition space, or sorry, in the endurance space that, you're right, it doesn't really matter what you eat because you're going to burn it off. And a good mate of mine, um, he's like, oh, I just don't really buy this like low-carb thing for endurance athletes. I just don't think it flies. Um, he is a guy that is exactly who I just described. He's really lean. He doesn't struggle with body composition. Um, yet he does require like a one square meal bar and a bottle of electrolytes and carb for a two hour like steady state cycle. Like, yeah, that is wrong. I, I wonder, I mean, I think there are athletes who are that, shall we say, metabolically flexible mm. that they pretty much can eat anything mm. and they will still be highly fat adapted because I, yeah. I think we need to draw a big distinction between you know what people consider to be fat adapted which is eating a low carb diet being keto adapted all those types of things which are not being fat adapted at all no they can encourage fat adaptation but if you are an athlete and you're eating a really high carb diet and your rer is bang on where it should be in other words your risk for exchange ratio for people watching it which basically tells us the ratio of carbohydrate to fat that someone's burning. If someone's RER is being on point, they're fat adapted. Totally. And if, and from a practical sense, like you don't even really need to do that in the lab. That the best test is to get up, get on your bike. How far can you ride? Like if you can ride without fuel, with just say water and maybe a few electrolytes. For a good four mm. hours, and that's a good sign that you're fat adapted. That you're fat adapted, and I see heaps of athletes who come to me who want to go low carb, but who are also actually are that metabolically flexible. Which, um, so I agree with you, Cliff. Like the, the the fact that you know that a high carb athlete can still be metabolically flexible, which is the ultimate goal, right? Yeah, and and I think one thing that I, I've been thinking a lot lately is really that being fat adapted, being metabolically flexible, being, being metabolically efficient, all these terms we throw around, really for an endurance athlete, that just means they're going to be resilient. And it means yeah. they're going to be resilient in the face of things that provide adversity on a really long event, like mm. in the Ironman, mm. where if you miss your fueling station or something happens, you're, you're basically going to be much more resilient because you've got that baseline fat burning. Yeah, But people mistake low carb athletes with being you know fueling solely on that or not yeah. eating at all we know yeah. that you know the, the good example obviously bring him up all the time is is dan flues dr dan flues mm -hmm. dude's a low carb athlete right he eats yeah. low carb lives low because that's what encourages increased fat adaptation but yeah. he obviously takes a truckload of fuel from all types of mixed sources when he's out doing an event that's it. And the goal for a low-carb athlete is not about, let's see how, it's not about maximum efficiency in fuel more than it is on, like, um, on, like, let's see how long we can go without. It's more like, okay, let's try and increase all the areas with which we can draw on for fuel. Because the, yep. the 
those that are going to do the best are those that are able to sustain the same pace and the same performance. So having the flexibility to burn both carbs and fat means you delay your glycogen stores till later on in the race. And so for a guy like Dan, like he gets away with only taking on board like 50 grams of carbs um, an hour, which is a lot less than what someone of his size would otherwise need because he's able to draw a lot from his fat stores. Now, the benefit of that is, yes, of course, we can talk about oxidative damage and stress and you don't get that kind of carb breakdown, but ultimately for an event that long, fatigue plays a massive role in your ability to digest and absorb fuel. So the less fuel that you take on board from that perspective, um, the less GI distress that you're likely going to have. But certainly it's not about no fuel and it's not about chugging a crap ton of car, uh, sorry, fat whilst you're out there because that is not, that's not helpful from a digestive perspective at all. And since we are talking about it, I mean, this is a good point, a good time to kind of highlight some of those really ridiculous studies that have come out in the last couple of years that are almost set up to prove that LCHF will not work for an athlete, like yeah. the race walking study. Yeah. So, uh, in so it, it, yeah. explain why, why, why do you think that was sort of designed to fail? Well, it was... It was set from memory. It was a three-week adaptation period where athletes went, either went on a keto-based diet or your standard control diet. Um, and there were a number of tests that they performed and also found that fat oxidation increased in the keto athletes. When it came to actual performance, um, it was race walking and it was a simulated, I think, 10-kilometer 10, 10 event. And these athletes yeah. were they were at like 85% VO2 max. These weren't just people meandering around the block. And they gave them fat as the fuel source throughout that race. Now, it is yeah. very difficult to digest and absorb fat at 85% VO2. You know, not impossible. And even for someone like Dan, he's not going to choose fat as a fuel source, even though he is really metabolically efficient. Um, yeah. So it was almost like set up to prove that keto wasn't the best approach for these athletes but it was no way set up the way that a practitioner who understands how to do it mm. would would recommend people do it well I, i'm gonna yeah I, I you make a really good point and it reminds me of something that i think is a real problem in the research setting when it apply when we talk about keto mm. and that is that Researchers have a very arbitrary idea of what a ketogenic diet is. They have an arbitrary mm. idea about how to achieve it. And it typically relies on absolute amounts of carbohydrate. Yeah. Now, I don't buy that and I never have. You know, I, mm. I did my first keto diet. I was talking about this with Eric and um, Eric Helms, Danny Lennon, Omar oh, Usuf on a, on a podcast a couple of weeks ago. Um, I remember that I, start, I tried my first ketogenic diet 24 years ago. Mm. Right. I wasn't applying them yet because I was at high school. I was a high school athlete, but I tried it because I thought it looked really interesting. It was a couple of years later that I started applying them in practice. But from the very beginning, probably because I wasn't, you know, tempered by the bias that people have nowadays, I, I was playing around with it to see what would work. And I've always applied ketogenic diets as a ratio of calories. Yeah. So let's say we're having 60% or 70% or 80% calories from fat. Now, what that means for the endurance athlete is even if they are sticking to strict keto, which they probably wouldn't do when they're on the event anyway, but even habitually, let's say they're having 10% calories from carbs or 15% calories from carbs, that's a lot more on a 4,000 calorie diet than a 2,000 calorie diet. 
So if people are just applying 30 grams of carbs a day yeah. and expecting for an athlete to perform, yeah. we're talking about completely different things. And also people conflate a keto diet with ketogenesis, right? Like ketogenesis is a physiological state and what it takes to kind of get there differs for depending on things, particularly your activity level. Like I think that people forget, and I know certainly um, people that I talk to, is that by very virtue of doing exercise which will deplete your glycogen stores and force your body into burning fat, like that occurs, that can occur even on 100 and 120 grams of carbs a day for some athletes. And I think that, so I think people get really caught up in, oh no, I've, I'm on 20 grams of carbs a day or and, and I haven't you know, made it or that's all I'm allowed. Whereas it's like, well, why don't you, instead start checking your well i've got things to say about checking your blood ketones but as a as a first measure <laughs> as a first measure you can pretty much see that you can get away with a lot more if you're doing that long endurance based training yeah and there's as we both know from having looked at that data there's a lot of uh inter individual variability oh, as well 100 percent, right you know, and I, I always bring up that little case study I did on myself. Now, this probably wouldn't work now, but when I was doing keto a lot more frequently than I am now, and I did that little self-experiment where I think I was eating around uh, 200 grams of carbs every night yeah. and still getting into ketosis consistently the following day, mm. most people who were orthodox fairly orthodox keto researchers, and that might seem like a bit of a contradiction in terms, yeah. but they, they just did not believe it. Yeah. Yeah. But there's no reason for, for me to have fudged my own results because who cares? It was a freaking blog post, but what it shows and what we've seen in our research is that it, it happens. You know, people in um, the study we just performed at AUT, people who were eating 25% calories from carbs were able to hit ketosis uh, levels. Totally. And so a couple of things on that. One, um, your study was very similar. Your N equals one is very similar to Peter Atiyah's N equals one, you know, when he was undergoing his massive kind of like cycling endurance stuff. And, and he would also note that, that he could easily get away with 100 to 120 grams of carbs post a, a cycle um, and then wake up in ketosis the next day. Like that, that's so. Yeah those N equals one, N equals one certainly exist. Um, but then if I go back to what I was thinking about with blood ketones is that that in itself, people, people are very black and white when it comes to numbers, you know, 0.4, not in ketosis, 0.5 and above, boom, I'm in. Um, and there must be something wrong with what I'm doing if I'm not able to reach, <laughs> you know, that 0.5 yeah. and above and, and all the rest of it. But to look at, you know, it's a, to some people, Initially, when they go on a ketogenic diet or they, yeah, they, they follow those kind of principles and they do get into ketosis, over a period of time and adaptation, your body becomes far better at actually utilizing those ketones as fuel. So their blood ketones may, you know, fall down to, say, 0.2 to 0.4, but it's because their body is utilizing that as a fuel source and not because they're unable to hit this kind of you know, because their body's unable to get into ketosis. Um, yeah. And there is certainly, as you were saying before, genetic, you know, there must be some kind of genetic differences to our ability to produce ketones or to utilize fat. And, and like Rob Wolf is a 
great example of that. And he's really open about, you know, he's a big keto guy. He's now got his keto masterclass and, and it's, a, like, it's a great program and he really helps a lot of people in that area. But he says, you know, his ketones never, almost never get below point, or sorry, above 0.4. And that's even after fasting and jiu-jitsu. Yeah. Um, yeah, Rob's uh, keto master course is nearly as good as my keto mastery course as well. But No way. Um, <laughs> no, near as good as yours. No, near as good. <laughs> yeah, it's that's interesting because I remember several years ago, Grant uh, Schofield, our, our buddy Grant, yes. called me up to his office, and he was having real problems getting into ketosis as well. Yes, and we basically looked at everything he was doing, and it looked like it was the perfect sort of keto diet, and he was exercising and all these types of things, and looked at all the reasons why maybe his ketones weren't being elevated. So maybe there is a gen genetic predisposition there to not produce ketones we know that exists you know yeah. we know that exists in certain populations there's carnitine palmitol transferase deficiencies and things like that um we'd have to obviously get a gene test to see whether that was the case but it could also be that he's somewhat under fueled and it's just turning them over and using them really quickly yeah but at the end of the day i think in those situations and i know that um, we've talked about this before you need to almost step back and take a qualitative approach to that and say, well, we've kind of looked at all this stuff. How do you feel? Yeah, totally. Great. And are you performing well? Yes. Are you sleeping well? Yes. Okay, well, don't worry about it. Well, see, it's funny because I thought Grant couldn't get into ketosis because of his cups of whey protein powder and cream that he was consuming. Well, that could have been <laughs> it. That could have been it. I remember walking in one day in his office and I'm like, what have you got here, Grant? And he's like, oh. In keto, I'm doing this, I'm fasting. I think he was kind of called it keto slash fasting, and it was like <laughs> literally cream and like clean lean protein powder. And I'm like, mate. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're throwing ground under the bus now. <laughs> it was hilarious, actually. No, I love it. That's a good thing when you're, you, you've got good mates. They don't mind a bit of a thing. But it's interesting, too, because as we discovered, this idea, this lingua franca of ketosis being greater than 0.5 millimoles of beta hydroxybutyrate in the blood has basically no foundational evidence it's an arbitrary it, number yeah it's only retrospective analyses which have shown that a couple of things really the vast majority of people who are on what we would consider to be a classic ketogenic diet achieve greater than 0.5 so there probably is some rationale to it because that's kind of the definition of a ketogenic diet is does it put you into ketosis? Well, mm. what is ketosis? So we had to take this retrospective thing where we're looking back. But what we don't know, and this is what I find really fascinating, is we don't really have any idea what the norms are for ketone levels for performance or for yeah. how we should feel or anything like that. And one, the only thing that I can think of that really helps to inform that debate is that, well, number one, people who are on a keto diet are typically over 0 0.5. We kind of know that, and that's mm. become the proxy, but we still don't know exactly what it should be. Mm. In the study that we performed on MCTs, we, we thought that there was some association there between improvement in symptoms of keto flu yeah. and improvement in mood when people were taking MCTs mm. and there was a pretty strong association between their ketone levels because they were on MCTs and those things. Mm. We didn't see that in the follow-up study when we were looking at the different types of keto diet. Mm. 
But when I went back and looked at the two data sets, what was interesting was the people on the lowest carb diet in the second study were achieving around 0.9 millimoles of ketones. Yeah. The people on the uh, keto diet in the first study who weren't supplemented with MCTs, guess what? They were around 0.9 millimoles. Interesting. So they're about the same. Mm. So maybe there is a bit of a tipping point where you get that extra 0.5 millimoles that was provided by the MCTs because they were about 1.4. Yeah. Maybe you do need a little bit of a boost sometimes to feel that little bit better. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that, like, because when they, I know I've been following a little bit of Brianna Stubbs' work and she's, yep. I, I can't recall where she's at, but she now works for Human, which is the, they do exogenous yes. ketone esters. Ketone esters, yeah. Yeah, and so you can take a ketone ester drink and boost your ketones up to about eight or nine, I think, in about half an hour, like quite considerably. Um, it, however, she says, you know, whether or not that's actually necessary from an, uh, a, um, an endurance or an exercise perspective, I mean, she's seen that, I can't recall whether this is research or her clinical work or anything like that, but when your ketones are at about 1 to 1.5 from an, an exercise perspective, that's actually all that you need. Like, you don't get additional benefits from going higher, but it's that kind of cognitive effect from having higher ketones which makes a difference. And I, I wonder in what, in what realms that's going to be relevant because, yeah. uh, you know, I think we certainly know that for seizure control, we want to be, you know, up sort of two, three millimoles plus. Yeah. But for mood and cognition, who knows? Again, there's just not enough research there to really tell us what the best levels are. Yeah. And my gut, based on doing a lot of just, you know, again, well, we've done some research on it. I, I've got yeah. to blow our own trumpet here because we have, and you're part of it, you know, you, you, you and I have yeah. written basically the only studies that have specifically looked at keto flu. So that's mm -hmm. a, a tick in the box. But I think based on that and clinical work, I would probably say that maybe one to 1.5 millimoles is, is probably a pretty good sweet spot for a lot of people. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think, you know, you and I both use and enjoy the Prove It ketone sachets. Um, if you're still, I'm pretty sure that you're still um, using them. Uh, and I've got, I've got a number of clients who just utilize them for the cognitive benefits as well. Like, you know, when they take them in the morning and they have it before they have any other food, um, yep. it really makes a difference to how they feel across the course of the morning. Cause they do last like a good two or three hours. Well, um, uh, yeah. I, I was talking with Paul, yeah, our buddy Paul Cadman yesterday yes. yeah, and he's doing a lot of work now with high level athletes mm. um having done you know his his grad cert in nutrition and he studied nutrition at massey as well before that and he's now doing a lot of work with elite athletes and he basically said straight out look i don't know if the physiological benefits are actually really there they're not really appreciable but it's it's the cognitive stuff that we're after so it's the boost in cognition at the later stages of say iron man or he's working with a lot of tennis athletes you know in a long long games yeah it's the cognitive effects. And, and I, I noticed that a lot, you know, so I'm not a, a fanboy of any particular product. The reason just to sort of disclose my, my interest here and, and yeah. prove it to everyone listening, the reason I like that particular product is it's simple. There's one reason it's that it's the only one that's a hundred percent deform beta hydroxybutyrate. Yeah. Now I know that some people listening in will say, well, that doesn't matter. You know, Dom D'Agostino said it doesn't really matter. And I, I respect Dom because he's an expert in this field. There's no doubt about it. But I do 
have a side of caution there because we know from other compounds that are not bioidentical, like synthetic folic acid and uh, synthetic B12 and things like that, it's not the fueling aspect that I'm worried about there. It's the signaling effects. Yeah. But beta-hydroxybutyrate is a signaling molecule as well. And if it's not doing the job, I wonder whether it might have some down-regulation of those, um, those particular receptors and things. And so it may not be an issue, but I don't want to take the the risk. So I'm going to use the one that's bioidentical for the human body. I, I know I'm talking too much, but I want to get one more thing out. Yeah, yeah. I've um, the the products that are coming out now are getting better and better. Mm, I, mm -hmm. I measured my ketones uh, just the other day with one of the new um, prover products that came out. Which one? Like the Ruby Max or the, the or sorry, the Ruby one or? No, it's just the Keto Net. So it's the new, oh, cool. which is basically just the formulation, the new formulation of the Keto Max. Yeah. And I think from memory, it was within 30 minutes, I had gone from 0.2 millimoles to 0.9. Oh, and wow. I think I got up to about 1.4 millimoles. That from, is one, impressive. One sachet is pretty impressive. So now I'm sort of yeah. thinking, well, one of my previous challenges was that they're, they're still pretty expensive, irrespective of brand, they're pretty expensive. But mm. because they're so, they're getting to be so strong, you can probably use half a serve and get the, the benefit. That is such a good point, um, Cliff, and that's really good to know. I've got a heap of that. I haven't had, I've actually got that, but I haven't actually used them yet. So I'm really interested to have a look and to see what effect I might find on them. I, I think it's actually quite different, and it's one of those interesting things where, as compared to, say, two or three years ago, let's face it, most of the products, including the early iterations oh, of the yeah. product, were pretty poor. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I couldn't really take a full serve anyway. It would affect my guts. You know, it was horrible. Um, they, they didn't feel that great. Now I think they're getting that much more that much they feel that much cleaner they're that much more effective in terms of boosting beta hydroxybutyrate and so i i personally think that the role of those things is is purely as a tool i think people can get hung up on all the sales aspects of it and worry too much about whether they're taking them consistently and whatnot they're a tool if at any time you want to boost your ketones they are effective for that and that's basically the end of it yeah i totally agree right um and interesting with what you were saying about um, what Cadsy was referring to with the cognitive benefits, that's exactly what I find as well. That if I'm on a long run and I've got ketones with me, my brain doesn't check out at all. Whereas, you know, when you've got a three and a half hour run to do and you kind of, you're flailing at about like an hour and a half going, my goodness, how am I going to do another two hours? Like that is a hard place to be. So um, that's yeah. what I really like about them. And look, we I know it's 2.45, but we can't actually um, <laughs> stop the – we can't actually leave this conversation without – I've got a couple of things that I want to cover off. And one of them is protein. Like, I really feel like protein gets just missed out on this whole conversation of the, you know, good or bad or, or like, good diets versus bad diets or a good approach versus a bad approach because, because people – just forget about it you know and I think in part it's because of that kind of pervading message that if it's low carb you don't want to have too much protein because then that protein is converted to glucose and and the rest of it but man I get I, I am an LCHF advocate but I'm probably more low carb moderate protein you know like I am I'm a bit of a protein pusher to be honest and not in the way that that kind of sets me up in the same camp as I don't know some kind of physique bodybuilder nutritionist or anything I'm sure but 
there is so much value in having good sources of quality protein in the diet that is often overlooked when people are reaching for, you know, cream, macadamia nuts and um, cheese. I was crucified by the low carb community when LCHF took off. Yeah. You know, and it was weird because this was in about 2011, I think. I'd come back from Canada. I was starting to, um, to you know, meet up with you and then starting to, from there, meet um, or re-meet, because I'd met them previously, Grant and Karen and whatnot, and starting to look at some research. And suddenly I started getting attacked by low-carb people because they're saying, you recommend too much protein. Hmm. And I was kind of thinking, well, number one, give me a break because I've been doing this for long enough. I've taken enough shit from the other side. I shouldn't be taking shit from you guys as well. Yeah. But it was, I think one of the problems was unfortunately what was previously just low carb or lower carb was then put out into the public as low carb, high fat. Yeah. And I think a lot of that was a branding exercise because it, it was controversial because people had been told to eat low fat for so long, it took people by surprise and it got a lot of notice. Yeah. But unfortunately, I think it kind of framed things in the wrong way because it's not so important, I don't think, to, to think about high fat as being a goal. It's more important, I think, to look at how we structure meals and how we structure our nutrition overall. And from my point of view, the first thing we look at is protein and making sure that's optimized yeah then veggies yeah and the rest is kind of window dressing it's critically important but if you're getting those things correct and you're not doing silly stuff like eating low fat varieties or you know taking all the fat off meat or whatever you often fall into balance anyway and i think protein has been massively underestimated and did you listen to grant on the podcast a couple of weeks ago oh no i've missed that it was really interesting because he said hey we got it wrong and the initial what the fat book because we we overplayed the the downsides of protein with respect to gluconeogenesis and how they might kick you out of ketosis and things which we now know is not really much of an issue so they yeah. are now transitioning much more into hey protein's a good thing to have in oh, your diet awesome because that's a I, I agree with you cliff with your kind of what constitutes like a good approach with food like and that's how you described it is exact exactly how i do it and i've got to say like I really like Eric and I like I really love what Eric does and I love his approach to diet and I think it's it's I've learned a lot from the way that he speaks about protein and and just I suppose the importance of it and and um yeah a whole host of things and not to be too dogmatic in your food choice and, and I think like the way that Grant said hey we got it wrong like I think we're probably all guilty of jumping on board something at one point or another. And, I'll, and I'm not saying I'm never doing this again. I'm sure I'll do it with the next thing that I come across. Um, yeah. You know, and you almost go too zealous or too far one way. And yeah. I think that that's probably maybe what Grant was referring to and, and certainly how I, you know, changed with my nutritional approach over the years. You know, like I was always, you know, no processed food and, and you know, it's, it's terrible for you and, and all moderate that protein and, and the rest of it. But kind of come back to this happy medium of hey you sort the basics and then the rest doesn't really matter as much yeah um I, I almost feel like a troll sometimes when you post a picture of something like when you um 
posted a picture of that spam sushi when you're in Hawaii. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I just, I look at it and just go, yum, that looks good. So I'm always <laughs> posting, like, that looks awesome. <laughs> that was great. I almost tagged you in a post of Krispy Kreme donuts, actually, the other day. Um, people were, like, shipping them down from from Auckland to Queenstown. And then I, I took a picture and, and I kind of posted, you know, are they really that good that you need to actually do some kind of, like, um, <laughs> some, what, what do you, shifting them down the country um because yeah. i know you like a donut or, or two um, although word to the wise i don't really i'm not a i hate to say it and i i probably limit my sponsorship opportunities here but i'm not a big fan of crispy cream are you not is there a difference do you know the, the donut that i love cliff is the one that i used to get from fish and chip shop when we were growing up and they were deep fried and <laughs> covered with like cinnamon but you'd always get a bit of salt in there as well because they you'd always yeah, get yeah. them alongside chips delicious yeah. Um, see this, okay, so my two points. One is um, when you say you feel like a troll when I'm like blasting out about certain foods on social media and how rubbish they are, I do always try and, because I'm mindful of it, like I try and contextualize why I'm saying what I'm saying and try to kind of put it into place that, you know, I'm not suggesting that you should never eat this food, but for some yeah. people, it's not going to be a good choice for X, Y, and Z reasons. And I, and I also, I mean, I get a lot of kickback for a lot of what I say on there. Um, however, I still will bang that drum because I think the more that what what how we think about nutrition is out there, the more that people will consider it. You know, I don't try and be yeah. a zealot, but I, I guess sometimes it can come across that way. No, I agree with you as well. And I think, again, I was criticized very heavily last year by people in the um, sort of body positive, uh, you know, empowerment type space, intuitive eating space, um, because I was still talking about the fact that you need to have a, a good diet overall if you yeah. want to thrive. Now, yeah. that might be true for everybody, but for 99.9 .9 recurring percent of people, you need to do that. And I was also saying things like, hey, if you really want to thrive and you want to exercise your full human potential, you need to, I've already said it, exercise. You need to, you know, and have that be progressive and lift weights and do things like that. Now, I'm not saying everyone has to do that or should do that or that we're aspiring to body beautiful. All I'm saying is that we can't beat 100,000 plus years of evolution in one generation and stop doing the things that we've basically been built to do by our co-evolution with our environment now there's no judgment involved in it it's just a purely objective stance and so i think what you're saying is correct there needs to be some responsibility that people take for what they're doing if they want to feel great now if they don't that's cool it all comes down to personal responsibility and choice but you're helping by presenting those things to let people know what those healthier choices can be and they can have their treats occasionally Totally, and I also think we forget that we actually come from a place of privilege. You know, if you're on my Facebook page and you are commenting on something that I've said um, because you have access to the information that is on there, like, that is actually, that's privileged to have that, you know? Like, there are people who just do not have the opportunities that others have to source that information or to have any clue about it. And I think yeah. that, you know, so when I put up, that TikTok post the other day, like it got like 500 people commenting on it. And people were like, oh, well, this is, clearly this is obvious. And it's like, actually, you know what? It's not obvious. And I think that we forget that. Yeah. And that's where I think you do such a great job as in simple health messaging. 
and that's that's so important you know again we we go back to what we initially discussed which is there's this idea of things need to be complex they need to be very intellectual because that's science but that that's not that's that's jargon and that's not always necessarily to be involved you know what is important is that we take that and we can allow people to get the best results through the translation you know i, I think about the um the clinical situations that i've had where people have been so obsessed with trying to understand more and trying to understand what's on food labels and things like that and when you just sit down with them and say hey really at the end of the day it comes down to natural unprocessed food and they kind of get it yeah and then they start things well you know working with some of the guys i work with out in south auckland who sort of say oh well do i need to um can i have a boil up yes do i need to scrape the fat off the top no no do i need to buy the expensive cuts of meat at the supermarket no buy the cheap ones because they are more nutrient dense and all this kind of stuff okay and they're, yeah. they're kind of like I, I get that what why is this difficult yeah yeah it's yeah, it's not, you know, it's not difficult, but the difficulty comes when they're walking up to get the meat from the supermarket and they pass, you know, three hot bread shops and they go past, you know, a, a big Whopper sign, like one Whopper for a dollar and that kind of thing. And, and I think that, that's the that's the modern environment that we're up against. Yeah. I've got to say, it's, it's out to get us. Doesn't that sound so like, sound, that sounds like a really zealous, but it's bloody difficult to do well in the, in the modern environment that is set up to make us fail time and again and that is when it you know people talk about uh, personal responsibility and I talk about it as well but ultimately for some it's like there are bigger things at play that they actually just can't you know um win it absolutely and I think that's why there can't ever be a situation of judgment you know there was that real there's been really interesting tangents of research that for example have shown that um self-control is is actually a bit of a myth yes people are able to exercise control in different areas and there's not really that much difference between self-control and individuals it's where they apply it and a lot of that comes down to social conditioning and education and all sorts of things so we can't just say oh you're overweight so it's your fault you've just got to move more and eat less yeah because there's two things there maybe they're also exercising their self-control more positively in other ways that other people aren't yeah or we also know that for some people they do not eat well or move and they're just lucky yeah 100 percent, right and we also know that that from a research standpoint there's been studies looking at nutritionists and dietitians and actually their level of self-control around food is far better than anyone out there like almost anyone i know that's gotten into nutrition myself included obsessed yeah you know, like, yeah. you know, there has to be a level of obsession to the way that we can just like, yarn about this stuff and, and it's what we love to do, you know. And, and I think if I come back to that intuitive eating thing, like I have, an, I have an issue with intuitive eating too, Cliff, and I think my issue is that it is hard Let's to be intuitive. Yeah, it's hard to be intuitive, again, with the type of food that's available out there because, you know, the type of food that people eat, if they're like, oh, it doesn't matter what you eat, you just put these behaviours in place and you'll be intuitive. Bollocks if you're, yeah. if you're up against food that will drive appetite signalling. I agree. And I think that the one of the challenges is what is intuitive? It's so complex when we drill down into that. I don't know if anyone has a really good definition of that because intuition is this vague, amorphous thing. Is it 
a physiological drive for for fuel in one instance or is it a behavioral conditioning or is it a serving a psycho-emotional need you know all of these things can be so deep that they could easily be mistaken for intuition yeah and we would just never know you know and i often use the example of you put neanderthal man in dunkin donuts he's not going to exercise discretion he's going to eat as much as he can within the shortest amount of time because that is good high sugar high fat high calorie loading yeah yeah and that's what our physiological drivers are and so i think we we do need to take some responsibility at some point and you know i use the term we need to exercise freedom but within structure yeah i totally agree so if you've got the structures that allow you to on balance have proper energy balance, get in enough micronutrients, get in enough of the essential nutrients that we need and not overeat, then you can also have your periods of ad libitum or eat as much as you desire, you know, of your treat foods. Yeah, yeah, I I totally agree. Like people often um, slam this idea of rules around food, you know, and I actually think that, as you've just said, there does need to be some... for most people, there does actually need to be some structure and, and some, dare I say, it, rules. And I actually wrote a blog post about this last year. This that allows them to feel like they're in control and that the food isn't controlling them. And I know that sounds weird for people who have never had to think about this stuff before. But anyone that hasn't thought about this is is in the minority. And no, that's um, I think it's bang on and. Eric and I spoke about that again on the podcast a couple of weeks ago of, you know, getting to that point where through some, dare I say it, rules, through some structures, people are allowed to exercise dietary freedom. Yeah. But with like with anything, we, we need to have parameters within our lives. Mm. If we didn't have them, we would never achieve anything of value. I firmly believe that. And anyone who thinks they can just meander through life without any sort of structure, any sort of objectives, any sort of parameters for, for achieving those objectives is fueling, is fooling themselves because it just isn't going to work. Yeah, totally. And that's where I think we're heading. And I, I um, am much more interested now in what happens after all this stuff. So we have nutrition, we have exercise, we have sleep and stress reduction, all these things that we talk about a lot in our sort of holistic evidence-based practice. But even if you did all of that, what does it mean? To me, there's something, there's a deeper level there of truly maximizing your human potential in whatever mm. way that is, being mm. creative, being passionate, being purposeful. And I think that's what being healthy allows you to do. Health isn't the end goal. It's that it allows you to thrive so that you can live a better life by exercising all of that cool stuff, passion, purpose. I totally agree because, you know, you could have everything you want with regards to the perfect diet, the perfect sleep routine, stress management and all the rest of it. But if you're not happy, like, how meaningful is any of that, right? Like, why go to all of that effort if you're still miserable day in, day out? Um, I've been thinking a lot about that actually recently and about mindset and, and I think in part I've been listening to a bit of Sam Harris and his Waking Up podcast or Making Sense podcast now and I just, yeah. you know, I love his approach his and how he talks about how, you know, our reality, sorry this is getting on so much of a tangent, but how our reality <laughs> really is 
um, it, it's between our ears, basically, you know, and, and the stories we tell ourselves is is our reality. So, you know, when people are angry, they, you're actually choosing to be angry. You know, you might think that someone has made you angry. That's actually not true. You're choosing to be angry at a situation. Like, and, and, and how is that actually making you feel? Well, usually pretty bloody miserable, you know. Yeah. So how can you change your thought patterns to enable you to you know, accept that you've had that feeling, but actually that you can change it. Like, it's not that you can never be angry. It's just the extent to which it affects you and your kind of behavior and, and your thought processes. Yeah, and that, that idea that, you know, our reality is is never 100% shared. You know, it is distinct to the individual. It's all based on perception and on our measurement of, everything going on around us you know our, our co-relationship with all the things that are going around us i think that if although there aren't absolute truths in science if there was one thing that was close enough to it it would be that yeah that's a foundational thing in science right is that there is no objective reality mm. really mm. and so it's a very interesting position because it does speak to a whole lot of things like the possibility of improve human potential the, the possibility of all the stuff that we're yet to discover yeah and to me that's really interesting and i think that's where people hamstring themselves because they think well science is science and science is set and that means this person's right and this person's wrong mm. and typically that's never the case because even if someone is mostly correct and there's consensus there is still nuance. And I think when we understand that, we can approach things in a much more pragmatic way and we can open ourselves up to the wonder and possibility of life, which I think is where the, the excitement really starts to happen. Oh, a hundred percent agree. And then, and with that, if I just kind of bring it back to diet and that whole, you know, no one is always a hundred percent correct and, and stuff like that. Like, I think that's where, that's why, you know, people are often like see me things going, look at this person, look what they're saying and, and what do you think and what's your opinion and stuff like that. And, you know, I never want to, I, and maybe I did this in my younger years, but certainly as I'm getting older, like I never want to take it against a particular person and their views like 100%, you know, because, you know, like, I, yeah. I disagree on a number of levels with some nutritionists out there, but I'm, I'm, always try to be respectful in that and not only respectful but also with a mind of actually you know what like I'm not 100% right they're not 100% right and it's probably somewhere in the middle um yeah yeah and and I think there's there's always space you've, you've always got to be mindful with that I think and I think in light of you know re recent events and the political situation now I think that's a really good reminder to people because we have, I think, become very divisive mm. and very polar. Mm. You know, we see it in politics, we see it in nutrition, we see it all over the place. You are either high carb or low carb. Mm. And if you're low carb, there are certain people that you think, well, that guy's an idiot. Yeah. And I am so opposed to that because I disagree with, I would say on some points, I disagree with everyone in the low carb field. Tote. And on some points, I disagree with everyone in the high carb field. Mm. But on some points, I agree with people in both camps. And at the end of the day, it's not about the personality and it's not about taking a dogmatic position. It's about doing science. And science should be far less dogmatic than it is right now. You, you create a hypothesis, you test it, you put your results out and you open it up to discussion. 
it's pretty simple. It is simple. The problem with nutrition, and I find this all the time, one, most of the recommendations that we see are based on that population or epidemiological research, right? Which has so many flaws because it's self-report, it's large populations, everything goes back to the mean and no one's a mean and and all the rest of it. However, whenever there's a study that supports the perspective of like a low carb or something, and it might be population-based, they're all over it like like a rash, you know, like... And, and they don't apply. Exactly. They don't apply those same kind of like rules and limitations to to the study that they're supporting that they would with their criticisms on other studies. Um, yeah. I find it, it it's fascinating actually. And it, it, it also sorry, go on, Mickey. Oh no, you go. It also annoys me when people say, "Oh, you know," that they immediately dismiss observational oh, studies yes. because they're observational. Yeah. Well, that's just observational and. Again, you know, the, I'll reiterate the same point you made. Often those same people, you know, take the ERIC versus the PURE study. Yeah. Everyone criticizing the ERIC study had the, the year before posted out the PURE study saying, isn't this awesome? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You got to, if you're going to reject observational evidence, you've got to use the same metric. Now, I, I obviously wrote posts about it. I gave talks about it. I did not agree with the conclusions of the ERIC study. Yeah. But I didn't at any point say the study was poor or the study was shit or that the study shouldn't have been published because, of course, it should. It adds to the body of knowledge. What we need to do is look at the study, at the methods they used, the results they got and why they got those methods and sorry, got those results and see what the the flaws might have been or see what the complexities and nuances of the study are. Yeah. And when we looked at that, we realized that, hey, what it basically told us, just like the pure study, is if you eat a diet that is high in vegetables, a natural, whole, and unprocessed food diet, you do best. Totally. That's all it told us. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? Like, I'm finding these days, I'm much more interested in kind of nuanced, kind of like clinical data, looking at things like, and I know it kind of gets into the weeds a little bit, like, you know, curcumin and and yeah. the impact that might have on our anti-inflammatory genes and pathways and sulforaphane and and... I think it's because I don't like, I mean, it's clickbait and you'll do it all the time, but there is like, always, there are always studies coming out regarding meat and TMAO and cancer and, you know, this study says this, this big population study says that. Like, I like looking at that kind of mechanistic based study to see, okay, well, is there anything plausible here? And kind of getting a bit more into the weeds on that stuff, not from a biohacking yeah. perspective, but just because I find the science interesting and a lot more interesting than debating on Twitter whether or not, you know, it's five plus a day or seven plus a day. <laughs> exactly. Well, I think the reality is people who, who debate and have a dogmatic position, I, I would hope that most of them would be able to stand back and say, you know what? At the end of the day, while this debate is great, if people are eating a natural unprocessed diet that is nutrient dense, they're pretty much going to be okay in most instances. Yeah, yeah. And that speaks to some of the things that you're talking about. I've recently been doing um, just sort of mini research reviews for some research I'm doing behind the scenes on a whole range of whole food ingredients from turmeric through to ginger through, you know, all these various things. And... A lot of times I'm pleasantly surprised just how much research is going on. Mm. You know, I, I was looking at coenzyme Q10 and there have now been, I think, about 70 plus systematic reviews on 
CoQ10. Wow. So that speaks to the, the volume of studies that are behind those systematic reviews. Mm, I know, that's heaps. Yeah, and, and a lot of them have pretty substantial evidence that they have effect. Yeah. And I, I think what, what we're getting to the point of as well is there's so many of these supposed superfoods that have positive effects. What we're really saying is, hey, nutrient-dense food is cool. I totally agree with you. And like, there are people out there that that are, um, that it seems like they time job to dismiss the role of fruit and vegetables, for example, in the modern healthy diet, because, you know, there's no research to, to support their role in, in, of, to support the role of an increased fibre intake on cardiovascular disease and colon cancer and all the rest of it. And I'm like, yeah, well, maybe you can find, you can critique and find holes in those theories, but let's not dismiss all of this other stuff that has been most recently coming out about the role of sulforaphane, for example, and brassica yeah. vegetables and the importance of sulfur and the sulfur containing vegetables and stuff like that. So you can go in on one angle, but you can't really dismiss all of the other stuff that that is kind of going on. Well, no, and, and unless, unless someone is suggesting that there are so many confounding influences in every single observational cohort that has had studies published about, um, uh, unless people are suggesting that, we would still have to say the, the odds against chance are that vegetables are good for us. Yes. Yeah. On balance. Now, I understand, like, I'm really fascinated by carnivore because I think that it's opening the doors again, like low-carbon keto did back in the day, to reevaluating the role of various nutrients in the body. And I think that's always a positive thing. Yeah. And I, I know that there are some people who thrive on a carnivore diet. Mm. But I do think that they are extraordinarily rare and on balance, most people benefit from eating vegetables. Yeah. And I still am blown away whenever someone who's a carnivore zealot tells me that no, vegetables are harmful for all these reasons. And I'm like, well, there's just no intervention evidence for that. No. And, and, and there's certainly no observational evidence for that. And it kind of just doesn't, like, if we think about, just kind of doesn't make sense really does it you know like it doesn't pass the sniff test it really doesn't and uh see i'm also fascinated by the carnivore diet and have thought to myself could i do that but to be honest i love vegetables too much to want to like to want to give them up so i wouldn't i probably wouldn't even try it for like a week for it i have yeah i've tried it because you know me i try anything yeah and i just qualitatively uh, yeah, qualitatively, do not feel good. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Well, do you know? I don't feel satiated. I don't yeah. feel energetic. I feel a bit gross. You know, I just yeah. don't feel right. Now, some of that sure could be psychosomatic, but it doesn't really matter because I think I'm a pretty good litmus test too. Because I'm I'm pretty messed up. I've got Crohn's disease. I've got all sorts yes. of other stuff going on, but I function well. And I eat a diet that works for that. And yeah. that diet includes vegetables. And when I when I find I drop my vegetables too much, I feel markedly worse. That's interesting, Cliff. And I think like I, I really do feel for the people who the carnivore approach is actually the best approach for them almost because they're because I just think, oh, you're missing all the most delicious part of the meal, like not the deli most delicious part. But I mean, I love a good veggie. And I love, you know, I love all things like that. And so people who actually physically cannot eat vegetables because of the the GI distress that occurs or the kind of 
inflammatory or immune response. I mean, I think that's, that's a hard place to be. We also can't necessarily discount that they might be, through doing carnivore, avoiding things that they're intolerant to. 100%. Or that it's basically the first start or the, the, the beginning of an exclusionary diet that could then be added to, kind of like the FODMAP diet, yeah. right? FODMAP is not a good thing to do long term, but yeah. it's clinically effective. So if you start something with FODMAP, you quite quickly begin to reintroduce certain fibers and resistant starches and things to replenish their microbiome. Yeah. I wonder if the same thing is probably true with calcium. Yeah, I I am thinking about I've been thinking about that a little bit lately too, just because it's been on a few podcasts and stuff. And there's um, Michaela Peterson, who has you know been a, a staunch advocate for the carnivore diet. She's Jordan Peterson's daughter. Uh, of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm we, not a fan of Jordan Peterson either. No, do you know I actually don't know enough <laughs> about him to have an opinion really. Um, and um, she was saying that you know she's going to start reintroducing some things in her diet. Um, now that she's spent a long enough time in the carnivore kind of world, not because she thinks, I mean, she doesn't know how successful or otherwise she will be, but she's also, you know, she's not uh, this, this staunch carnivore zealot, but she's, she's doing it because she's absolutely had to do it. And it's not like, this is my yeah. life forever. That, that's really interesting because every person that I know personally who does carnivore or is a carnivore advocate doesn't do pure carnivore. Yeah. They all added something back. They might have started eating a little bit of dairy again, or they might have, um, in most cases, they start, in my experience, and this is just purely limited to my experience, but they've started adding back things like fermented vegetables. So they're starting to add back in pickles and sauerkraut and things like that. Oh, yeah, nice. Now, I, I, actually, I could get on board with that because probably a good proportion of the vegetables that I eat are, are pickled. Yeah. But, yep. you know, Bella makes me eat a bunch of other vegetables as well, and it's good for me. Uh, but we we base our meals around meat. Yeah. But there's the extra there, and I think it does often come down to a process of really it's that drastic exclusion, and then you start to find your wiggle room of adding things back in that work for you, and that's, that's in a sensible approach, I think. I totally agree. And on that pickles, I've recently discovered pickled onions again. And my God, I love them. They are amazing. So good. Yes, yeah, so, so good. good. <laughs> and then on that uh, vegetarian slash meat thing. So, you know, um, Baz, my partner, yep. vegetarian, 26 years, until about a month ago. And uh, Oh, really? Yeah. So, I mean, his, his, he kind of came and said, Mickey, I've been thinking about eating meat. And I tried not to like get too excited by this because, you know, I, the, and the reason why I say this is not because he was an unhealthy vegetarian. And in fact, if anything, he proved to me what I didn't think was possible, that you could be a perfectly healthy vegetarian. And he really was 26 years, yep. no problem. Um, and, uh, and he's like, yeah, but I might just try it, you know, just by myself. And I'm like, oh, cool. And then like about two weeks, no, three weeks ago now, he said on a Wednesday, he's like, guess what? I tried some chicken. And I'm like, ah, oh, what do you think? He's like, oh, it just tasted like chicken, really. Um, and, then, <laughs> and, and then since then, it's That's just, it. it's, yeah, it's basically been um, a bit of a meat adventure for him. And it's, it's super exciting for me because he's a foodie. Like, he loves food. And the fact that he's now opened himself up to one of the tastiest things that you could possibly eat, pate, steak, lamb, you know, chops, salmon, the whole, the whole thing. Um, but really interesting 
is that his gut, not a problem at all. 26 years of not eating any more, any kind of like animal meat, um, and his, he's handled it perfectly fine. Because that was the one thing that I was worried about with him. Yeah, I, I've dealt with a lot of people, former vegetarians, and in my experience, it's, it's very rare for people to suffer adverse GI effects from, from meat, except maybe really transiently if they just go crazy, you know, eat a kilo of steak their first night back or whatever. Yeah. Um, I was, obviously I didn't have the same length of time as, as Baz, but I was strictly vegetarian for about seven years. And I just found that as this was around the same time that I was being diagnosed with, with Crohn's disease in my early twenties, and it just was not effective for me to continue eating a vegetarian diet. It was just too, you know, particularly with trying to get in enough protein and things like that. It was just way too inflammatory for me, too many things that I was sort of borderline intolerant to. So I went back to meat and it was just an absolute epiphany. Mm. Now I, at that point had to reevaluate a lot of my ethical stance on food because previously I had been vegetarian for moral reasons because Mm. I was a practicing Buddhist. I still, you know, that's my sort of spiritual basis is as a Buddhist and I I didn't want to take life, but I had to come to this sort of point of thinking, well, either I can thrive or I can be unwell. And I chose to thrive, even though I was going to have to take life. What I found out, much later in which I now believe based on the research is that there is not more life taken through an omnivorous diet than a vegetarian diet. Oh no. And that's such a misconception. That's what's been really eye-opening for me. I don't know if you saw my little evaluation of that. I went through a lot of the USDA data and um, agricultural data from the States and Australia and New Zealand and looked at the relative amount of sentient lives that would be taken if you were subsisting on, say, soy versus beef. Yeah. And I chose soy to be as sort of liberal as I could be towards a vegan diet because it was the highest in protein and the highest in calories and things out of any of the vegan food sources. And at best, you could say that they were about on par. Mm-hmm. But at worst, you would say that the soy-based diet took more life than the beef-based diet. Yeah, and I've and that's and what you've just described is exactly the the research that I'm familiar with. And not and I'm not by no way suggesting I'm I'm an expert in this because I certainly am not. But it's my neither am I. But it's my understanding that that's exactly the case. And and not only that, they conflate. So there's so much conflation between the North American agricultural kind of industry. Um, with the New Zealand environment, and it, it is just different. But the one thing, yeah. Cliff, I have to say, which I'm completely ignorant on, and I really need to do, school myself up on, is dairy and the effects and the effects of like dairy cattle on our um, waterways and stuff like that. Because that's something which I don't know enough about, um, and that I really need to, and, and I really want to understand the impacts, the environmental impact of dairy, because. I feel uncomfortable that I'm, I'm just not that um, smart on that stuff because I'm a big advocate of, I'm, I'm an advocate of dairy from a nutrition standpoint um, for what it can add to people. And I always have been, you know, like I, and, and I'm, mm-hmm. I don't have an issue tolerating dairy myself. And I think that's probably why I'm a bit sympathetic towards it, if you like. Uh, but I would certainly probably change that stance if there was a, an environmental 
reason why. And I, yeah, I just, yeah, I just, that's so, I'm a little bit um, ignorant on that stuff. Yeah, likewise. And I, I think um, th there's also so much more that needs to be researched in the space of pollution and, and climate change oh, yeah. with respect to both, you know, beef and other ruminants and, and dairy, because I think what we have at the moment is very incomplete data. Mm. Now, I'm certainly not a conspiracy guy because I typically agree with the scientific consensus unless the scientific consensus is not actually a consensus. Uh, yeah. And so with climate change, for example, I wouldn't dispute the, the idea that climate change is occurring and that it's man driven yeah because 99.9 percent .9 of the scientists out there who know what they're talking about are saying this is the the case yeah but in terms of what's driving that in terms of what we do i think there still needs to be a lot more research done and i think that's particularly true with things like beef production where often the the modeling that's used is it's in silico right yeah. it's not necessarily looking at the complexities of all the data and all that's happening it's very much in silico based on an american model of factory farming yeah and there's all sorts of things like carbon sequestration and pasture and all that kind of stuff that hasn't yeah. necessarily been taken into account properly now it could still it still could still turn out that it is for the environment but i just don't know and from what i've seen i think that the impact of beef for example on climate change is minimal at best yeah even based on what we know now which is very much skewed towards the idea that beef is a negative for for climate change that's how I understand it as well. And in fact, if, I, if, if what I've read is correct, the worst thing you can do is actually have children. <laughs> well, I think that's probably a given. I think also we need to um, to, to look at the, the real drivers of, of pollution, of climate change, of, of problems in general. And I think one of the biggest challenges we have is, is wastage. Yeah. Irrespective of anything else, I read a report in which they suggested that around 48% of usable food stuff was wasted in the Western world. Oh, yeah. Now, to, to my mind, that would mean we're completely blowing out any aspect of one particular type of food. Because, you know, people will talk about, for example, um, eating meat as having a big climate effect. And they say things like, you know, 50 to 70% effect on climate change emissions and things like that. But that's only food-based emissions and it's based on incomplete models and even orthodox scientists have said that overall that equates to less than four percent yeah of total emissions so that's actually a very small effect and if it's not complete and there's a lot more going on like carbon sequestration i certainly think the story has not been told yet i agree with you cliff and and i was listening to a podcast the other day joe rogan had on a scientist from the New Yorker, and he's a climate, he's an environmental scientist, and he's got a he's written a book as well. And um, the book sounds great, actually. I keep meaning to download it, and I've forgotten. Um, I, I yeah, I can't remember the name, but I know the book you're talking about. I'll post it up in the show notes. Yeah, do it. Um, and he was saying, look, yeah, diet is important, but actually, what's more important is not necessarily how many meat-free nights you have a week. It's more, you know, it's the it's actually the higher level stuff, which, which not that we not he's not suggesting that we have no personal responsibility with regards to waste or or anything like that. But 
he's he his opinion based on the research he's done is that actually there are things that have to happen well outside our own individual control that is actually going to make the big difference. Um, Definitely. And God, can I say, like people talk about uh, climate change and talk about beef and and, and eating animals and. I saw a post the other day, I think it was Diana Rogers put it up, Sustainable Dish. She's got some amazing um, information up there. And um, it was, you know, thinking about things like fur, like, uh, or the packaging that is used for, you know, meat-like products. Um, Fake fur is actually made from plastic. Um, You know, and thinking about all the industries that you support when you choose not to eat meat, where actually, if, if, you know, depending on your value system and, and, and everything else it's probably on balance a better decision to eat meat from an environmental standpoint than it is not and i I think as well to look again at the take a step back and look at what your total impact is anyway and i think this sort of brings it back as well to a nice sort of ending of the holistic approach to to health and happiness we can become very segmented looking at do i eat meat or do i not but we can also take a step back and say, well, what is my overall impact? Am I really living a life that has a small footprint? Yeah. You know, how many of shoes do I need? How many extra things do I need in my life? And is it really serving me? And I think when people get back to looking at what is serving them best and what we were discussing before about truly living your human potential, that's a whole different thing to transient states of ecstasy that you get from stuff. And, and when people do that, I think that's when we start to see a big impact because wastage and largesse is on a consumer level such a big thing, notwithstanding that there's bigger stuff going on, which probably has a bigger impact anyway. Yeah, 100% Cliff. So Mickey, I could talk to you for literally hours. And we've already <laughs> no. talked for a long time. Yeah. I didn't even go off. I didn't even go on script today. So there's a whole list of questions that I haven't asked you. So I'm going to have to get you back on because there's lots of things that I want to ask. Where can people find out more about you and what you do, Mickey? Because I'm sure people listening to this will want to connect. Okay, so Facebook is probably um, where I'm most active, and I probably post my most kind of consumer-based information, if you like. Um, and that's just Mickey Willardin Nutrition on Facebook. Uh, Twitter is where I um, kind of pontificate on things science. Not really, actually, I just post studies which I come across and and stuff. So from a research perspective, that's probably a really good place to kind of get me there as well. And then anything kind of food-related is is in what I do every day. Um, I usually put it on Insta story, which in fact comes through my Facebook feed anyway. Got to say, Cliff, um, for the listener, uh, hilariously, this actually has been like we've just sat down um, and just had a good old tin wag about whatever it is that we feel like talking about. And almost none of it was nutrition related, um, which is what I love, you know, so it's cool. So this has basically been an insight into what we typically do when we catch up for coffee anyway, right? Pretty much, except we just don't have the dates gone with us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, well, I, I really appreciate it, Mickey. I know that you're super busy and you've got lots on your plate. So I, I appreciate the couple of hours out of your day. Um, but like I say, I would love to get you back on and talk about a few more things as well. And I'll make sure I post up all of that great information that you've given us in the show notes too. Oh, hey, it's been a real honor coming on, Cliff, because I love everything you do. And I'm just so pleased and so that you've you're at this point now and you've handed in your PhD and you're moving on to other things and 
and I just think that you make the world seriously a better place and I just love that I call you a mate so um thank you thanks Mickey likewise see ya cool see ya that was the Carb Appropriate Podcast with me, Cliff Harvey. If you'd like to watch the live recording of the podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash Cliff Harvey. Find out about me and what I do at cliffharvey.com and make sure you subscribe to this podcast on all popular podcast channels and to our YouTube channel at holisticperformance.tv.